Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On the first part of today's episode, we'll be talking about It Happened But Nobody Noticed, a 2009 documentary from directors Jerry Lombardo and Eric Michael Schrader that documents New Haven's punk and new wave underground music scene from 1978 to 1988. We'll talk with Lombardo and Schrader about how this movie came to be, some of the bands, venues, and unique personalities that made up New Haven's punk and new wave scene in the 80s, and the ways that movies and music can intersect to help us understand this specific time and place in the Elm City's underground cultural history. For the second segment of the show, I'll be joined by WNHH station manager Lucy Gelman and New Haven Independent staff writer Alan Appel for a review of Denial, a new movie from director Mick Jackson that presents the based-on-a-true-story legal battle between Deborah Lipstadt, an American historian and professor of Holocaust studies played by Rachel Weitz, and David Irving, an amateur historian and rabid Holocaust denier, played by Timothy Spall. But first, I'm very happy to welcome to the studio and via the FaceTime internets, Jerry Lombardo and Eric Michael Schrader. Jerry and Eric are the directors of the 2009 documentary, It Happened But Nobody Noticed. Jerry, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having us, Tom. Okay, so I... in trying to do my research on how this movie came about i came across a 1982 compilation lp uh that bears the same title as this movie right it happened but nobody noticed and a 2008 cd re-release that led to a concert at cafe nine so jerry my first question for you is what's the relationship between the title of that ep or that lp what what music was on that lp that was put together in 1982 and uh, and what's the relationship between that and the movie that you made? Craig Bell of the band Saucers, uh, whom was also in the Future Plan, decided to document uh, recorded music of that time, and he called his record, It Happened But Nobody Noticed. It was a single LP that, as you mentioned, came out in 1982, and was reissued as a two-CD set that had loads more mu- music on it subsequently. Um, I was there, you know, for much of what that music became and happened for so many of us. And um, I was watching WPAA, my local public cable access one night, and it said, come on down and have your own TV show. So I did. And uh, that's where I met Eric. And Eric taught me one important thing about making movies. He said, you have to have a story. And I thought, we've got a story to tell. That's this thread that combined uh, an amazingly eclectic group of individuals with different locations that sprouted some really wonderful and unique music that was shared by so many of us. So the the distance between the 1982 initial kind of issue of this uh, LP and when you uh, met Eric and decided to put this story on film is is some time. But the, it seemed like the precipitating instant um, precipitating incident was this concert, this kind of reunion concert. Was it yes. at Cafe Nine? Yes, that it took was. Place? Um, what did you see? What did you hear at that concert? What what happened there? Um. I couldn't get in. <laughs> I was on the outside. I couldn't bribe any of my buddies to get me in, but I listened to a lot of music. It was really nice to hear those bands again that I hadn't heard in so long. But uh, that did precipitate me into making the film. It was like, it has to be told, and we had nothing. Eric and I had nothing. I mean, no footage, nothing, but an idea to do this. Um, I was a photographer at the time. I, photogra- I did photography for Toad's Place from 1980 to about 1988. Um, I was at a lot of those shows, and I thought, well, I've got some photographs. So we started there, and I also knew people, knew a lot of people. So it was like between the internet contacts and phone numbers I had, the ball just started to get rolling, and uh, Eric helped me out down there at WPAA. 
Eric, tell me a bit about how you came to this story. So Jerry comes to you, you you meet at, remind me the name of the station that you two met at, or where was it that you went to uh, to learn how just, to? It was just Wallingford Cable Access. I was going to Southern Connecticut State University as a like a communication video production major, and that was my part-time job, was working at uh, Wallingford Public Access. It was like, uh, I was making Wayne's World, <laughs> basically. It was like Wayne's World over there. And what's your um, what was your relationship to this, if you had one at all, to this kind of punk and new wave scene that that Jerry was inspired to uh, document? It was more like I didn't I didn't have a direct relationship, but my relationship to the C- Connecticut scene was I used to go to a place called the Tuning. So I was maybe a generation later seeing bands like The Pissed, Broken, Boiling Man. So I knew about music and underground punk rock from the Tuning. But I looked at this as an opportunity to almost get the DeLorean, jump in the time machine with Doc Brown, and go back even further and see what was there before the stuff that I saw. So it was, it was an adventure, and I love rock and roll documentaries. So I looked at it as an opportunity to go to work, but edit something interesting and fun, and I'd learn something from it. So in New Haven, one of the kind of nationally known filmmakers that we have here, who actually, I think he lives in Hamden, is a man named Gorman Bouchard. And he's made a number of different movies, starting out with kind of horror cult classics like Psychos in Love in the early 80s, and then evolving into, he's really become an eminent kind of rock documentarian, especially of bands of this era that you're also describing, The Replacements, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of the movie there, but he's also documented Husker Du, um, Archers of Loaf, but his approach uh, to making music documentaries kind of changes each each time each each band that he approaches. Color Color Me Obsessed is the the one, um, or Color Him Obsessed yes, I, I uh, about the replacements. And his focus there is is uh, talking with fans about their love of the replacements. He doesn't play any replacements music. He doesn't show any concert footage. It's all about an evolution of kind of a fan culture. And to me, that really gets at what really distinguished this era of underground music for me it's the not you know rabbit in a negative way but the intensely passionate nature of the people who were showing up to these shows the way that they connected with this music and i wonder jerry as you were thinking of kind of how to tell this story the story of new haven punk and new wave from 78 to 88 um what what approach do you have in mind towards the beginning of the project? Like, what, what did you think would be an appropriate way to put this all together? And how did that change as you came across materials, as you spoke with people, as it all did come together? As Eric will attest, this was an extremely labor-intensive project uh, for myself. Eric just really was the uh, technical arm. Uh, without him, I couldn't have done it. But it was like every night I'd be writing what would become a, a screenplay from interviews and I would use the pretty much the same questions of these persons whom I interviewed to formulate, um, shall we say, a running plot line that we edited. And it was just very, very labor-intensive because I'd have to transcribe these interviews and then sort of dissect what fit in best with telling the story of not only the music but also the places that this happened at. To me, the running thread was the places. One opening, closing, leading to another, opening, closing, and the fans just following this and changing and evolving as the music changed and evolved. Eric, you mentioned how you uh, used to go to venues, like, I think you said the Tune In, was that the name of mm-hmm. it? Yeah. 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 Um, 
that you also have a connection to this music through the kind of places that you saw it performed. But I wonder if, you know, it's one thing I was really struck by and really enjoyed about this movie is that it is structured around the venues, as Jerry was saying, starting in Bridgeport and then moving to various places in New Haven. Um, maybe could you get us started talking about some of the uh, some of the venues covered in this movie and may, and your experience with them, if at all? And then I want to get get over to Jerry and get his sense of what the kind of unique personality of each venue covered in this movie is. Yeah, I think that the the main stars of the film, if there was stars, I mean, this is just you know, this is home and all our friends and everyone, or became our friends during the process of making this. But I think the locations, the bars, the venues, they're the cast. They're the stars. And then we have all these people talking about being there and hanging out at these places like Ron's Place. Well, actually, Ron's Place, we had nothing, really. There wasn't much footage. And obviously, it's closed, so there's no way to shoot there anymore. But what I loved that we did was we took an approach of doing reenactments for some of the uh, some of the footage we didn't have. So we, we, we made a Ron's Place out of uh, the, the television studio that we had in Wallingford. Um, yeah, I really think uh, we had Ron's place. Jeez, Jerry, it's been so long. What else do we have? Well, yeah, uh, after Ron's place came the Oxford Ale House. Oxford Yale House. Oxford yeah, Ale we had House. Some, we had some uh, eight millimeter or sixteen millimeter footage of that place. That was the hardest. Like once I started seeing the footage come in, I'm like, oh, we could totally use this because you you need to tell the 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 audience like this is what like this is what it smelled like. This is what it looked like. There's beer all over the floor. Like we wanted to show all that stuff, and we were fortunate to get these boxes of footage from people that had it like under their bed or in their garage or in their attic, and were willing to give it to us as long as we didn't destroy it and gave it back properly. So, Jerry, before let's let's sit with uh, Ron's place and Oxford Alehouse to start because those are the first two kind of stars of the movie. If we have a prelude in Bridgeport with uh, the Snake's Pit and the Hotel St. George, then the kind of emergence of New Haven and New Haven's kind of uh, you know, central role in the story is with Ron's place, the the house of punk on on Chapel and Park. Um, what was this place? Why was it important to this scene? People used to live there. I mean, really, they would never leave Ron's place. I was uh, peripheral because at the time I was doing a job that caused me to travel a lot, but I did go there several times, and I was knocked out. But by the time I got there, it was sort of like pretty much going to close. My uh, best memories, like Oxrail House, I'd go there, see some of the bands, but I never saw any national acts. I didn't see the Ramones there. I didn't see the B-52s there, but I heard about it. And again, unfortunately, I was working in New York, and I was out of town. But um, my most favorite part of the film in that era was the Grotto, and that was just like the best. I used to spend a lot of time at the Grotto. I used to be there four or five times a week. So what? So the grotto is if Ron's was on Park and Chapel. Where was the Oxford Ale House? I couldn't figure out where Whitney. It was on Whitney. Oh, okay. Yes, now it's a supermarket. Oh wow, that's great. Uh, well, not great, but that's interesting to know. You know, it's always one of the things I so love about doing the show. And you know, we recently spoke with a Quinnipiac professor named Rich Hanley, who made a movie called Last Days of the Coliseum, uh, which is a kind of an urban historian's approach to telling the story of the Coliseum and the different hockey teams that have existed in New Haven over time, the different, you know, New Haven's relationship with rock and roll, but it's also a, a history of urban renewal and of demolishing the Hill neighborhood and trying to shove the Route 34 connector um, through that part of town. So one of the things I so enjoy about this movie is creating a new kind of visual map for myself of the cultural scene, the musical scene in downtown New Haven. So if we had Ron's on Chaplin Park, if we had Oxford Hill House on Whitney, <clears throat> the grotto was on college, right? The grotto, Crown. 
It was on Crown. Yes. And it was underground. That's right. So tell me about what, what the grotto felt like, what kind of bands played there. What, what was the scene at the grotto? It had this gothic facade with these really wonderful metal lanterns. And I'm <laughs> glad I photographed the front of the grotto. You'd walk down the stairs. You'd meet the nice lady. You'd hand her your five bucks. You'd hit the bar up for a draft. And you'd walk into the next room, and that's where the bands played. Originally, bands played at the, uh, shall we say, western end, and then they moved the stage to the opposite end. The, book, the shows were originally booked by Mark Mulcahy for so very long, um, but other people would bring shows there, but mostly Mark Mulcahy of the band Miracle Legion. But I was there for the opening with the flesh tones and disturbance, and I didn't miss that many great shows, at least. Uh, and I documented them. I photographed them. And my friend, uh, Dennis Buffard, he filmed several of them. So we had that to work with. And what was it like photographing at the Grotto? Was it a place that was... I imagine it's pretty darkly lit. I imagine it's somewhat difficult to get a good image, but uh, was it a place where you as a photographer were kind of bouncing along with everyone else sweating and jumping in the room? Or you, well, what was it like for you as someone looking to document it even before you started thinking about this movie? I'd get there very early. I'd get right in front of the stage and I could use a flash there, unlike Toad's Place where there was no flash allowed. And, you know, people in the movie, the and I'm... I'm very eager to get to some of the bands as well to talk about the music itself. But m- many of the people interviewed in this movie talk about the grotto as kind of the quintessential venue for the scene and that it really, it had like a sweat to it. It had like this visceral feel that just felt like punk rock. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that feel is so, it's so inextricably linked to the music, right? It's so difficult yes. to separate just the feeling of being underground and, ab- and have, you know, being surrounded in like a densely packed group of people was the grotto, um, uniquely conducive to punk rock in your mind, or was it just that's what it did well? Absolutely, it was a New Haven version of CBGB. I mean, we had our own little family. Everybody knew everybody else. As a friend of mine pointed out, there never was a bouncer at the Grotto. I never once saw fisticuffs there, except for one occasion that was—I don't recall—it was documented in the movie. But Eric Lifeson of Rush came into the Grotto when the band was playing at New Haven Coliseum. He started saying some pretty nasty things about. The music we like, so uh, he sort of had a little set two with uh, somebody there and spilled out into the street. <laughs> that was the only time I ever heard of fisticuffs, any problems at the grotto. And then as as the grotto closed, Toads emerged as the, well, this is my understanding of the story. I'm, I'm curious to hear sure. if this is accurate or not, but Toads kind of took its place as the kind of the central spot for New Haven's punk scene, although it was perhaps geared a bit more towards national acts than it was towards local acts, at least to start. Um, as someone who, again, was photographing there, who was seeing shows there, how did Toads, which is really the only venue described in this movie, featured in this movie, that is still around? And we have plenty, we have, you know, Bar and Cafe Nine and, and plenty of other spots downtown that are trying to keep this legacy alive, but Toads is the kind of connective thread from that era what, what was Toads like in this era of 78 to 88 for you, Jerry? Uh, my good friend Catherine Cormack started to book bands there in 1983. And the management of Toads Place, they're making lots of money with their Saturday night dance parties and their Beatle cover bands and that sort of thing. They didn't want to know about this music. I mean, punk rock or whatever you want to call it, new wave, alternative, whatever label you want to put on it was relegated to Monday night or Tuesday with 50 cent beers. That was it. And Catherine, she booked you too, you know, and 50 people showed up and she took a lot of flack from that from her boss. And I mean, later on she was vindicated, but she would book bands like, you name it, any cool band that was touring nationally between 1983 
onward would play Toast Place. Mm. They'd go from Boston to New York, and we'd be in between or between Providence, and they'd stop in New Haven. Do you go to Toad's much anymore? Is that still a venue on your musical uh, routine? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can tell personally I've been to Toad's. You know, in my five years living in New Haven, I've been there maybe twice. Um, So it is not, you know, I definitely go to Cafe Cafe 9 is much more of a spot uh, for me and and Bar and the Owl Shop and um, some of those other clubs downtown. Uh, But Toad's, I think in, in my understanding and for a lot of my, you know, friends, musicians or not in New Haven, uh, we don't really look to Toads as anything other than, you know, I appreciate it politically. I love how it is the one spot in the Broadway commercial district that is not owned by Yale. And boy, do they flaunt it in Yale's face every chance they get. I mean, they, they really are holding out as not so much a townie spot, but a non-Yale spot. Um, that said, I I don't, the, the type of music, the kind of new, exciting kind of, uh, if not avant-garde, trying to push the edges of what I like in rock and roll, I don't see that going to Toads, necessarily. I see no, stuff I that is kind of rehashed of 90s rock. I'm not home anymore. I'm not, I'm not out there. But I, I see like that uh, college music hall is taking, the, is taking what, over what Toads used to do, in my opinion. From what I see, I haven't been there, so I don't know how big it is, but it looks like the college music hall has, takes all those bigger rock shows now. Is that true? You labeled it. You, you hit it right on the head, Eric. It's a great venue. Um, I'm going there to see Foles. That's my next show there. November the 3rd, it's a Saturday. But they do a wonderful job there. It seems like that's taking the place of Toads. Yep. And Toads is just the dance parties and the trivia bands. Well, they have hip-hop is, there. And know. Um, you know, God bless just, them if that's the kind of music they want to present and there's an audience for it. I saw my first show ever, and it, it wasn't anything from the seventies or eighties. But my first show there, I saw Weezer at Toad's Place. That was my first. That was ninety six. That's great. That um, was great. That was the Pinkerton tour. That is wild. Uh, so as we, you know, I, I'm let's. I think this is a good kind of transition into some of the the music and the bands featured in the movies, the people who are playing at these venues. But first, I want to remind listeners that you are listening to Deep Focus on WNHH. 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen. And I'm talking with directors Jerry Lombardo and Eric Michael... Oh, no, Schrader. 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 I've blanked on your last name, Eric Michael Schrader. I, was, I still That's wanted to make right. sure to get that middle name, and then I forgot the last name. <laughs> Eric Michael Schrader, who are directors of the 2009 documentary, It Happened But Nobody Noticed. And Eric, I want to start with you as we begin to think about the, the music document in this oh, yeah. movie, because yeah. as the editor... Um, as the person kind of putting, you know, someone thinking about all of this footage that was coming in, all of these different clips from all these different sources, uh, first, tell me a bit about the different types of film used in this movie, because I love the diversity of it. And also, uh, who, you know, what what were the bands that you saw in these music videos, um, in these amateur home films, in this concert footage? Did uh, Was one medium I'm, kind of better for this documentary than another? I love the bands because i wasn't around from the band so this is my first experience getting to see and hear these acts i mean if the if the band the strokes stole their style from anyone it, it would have been the poodle boys because the poodle boys that's what the strokes look like these days like the poodle boys to me had like the whole look and the sound is that the right i'm saying the right name jerry right i'd right? say so yes poodle boys poodle boys I thought, I thought they were hilarious their home Whole music videos was stuff that you know I used to do as well as a, as a kid and with my bands. So I love I love that band a lot. I got really into the Poodle Boys. I got really into the Survivors. Uh, the Survivors was one of my favorite bands. Uh, Carrie Miller's band, um, Hot Bodies. 
What was the other one? Camera face? Camera face. And before camera face, it was, um, okay, uh, their hit was called Happy Hour. And that was a band I'm forgetting about. But hold on, I'm going to cheat and look at the poster. It was not listed on the poster. Valley of Kings. <laughs> there, Valley yeah, of Kings. Not, Ron Sutton. I, I became friends with those guys. I actually tried out for their new band, and I, I didn't get the part. But, uh, uh, yeah, Ron and uh, uh, Carrie became friends of mine after the uh, the making of the movie. We were very fortunate with the formats. Luckily, everyone that gave us uh, the footage was smart enough to take their home movies, like film, and put them on VHS or uh, DVD. So we were able to skip that process of having to deal with actual film um, and then the, the station where I worked, where we cut this together, was still able to do VHS and, of course, DVD. Um, this is, and we had everything on what, like two or three hard drives, I think, Jerry? As I recall, yes. Uh, operating at the same time on a PC. And that was the last time I ever used a PC was working on that documentary. I, was, I had it. I was done with working with a PC. Uh, that computer would crash nonstop working on this film because we had so much content. Eric, what was it like learning about these bands and first experiencing them through a video archive of their works? I imagine it's quite different seeing them in person, kind of playing at the grotto, and then another watching them. I mean, as much as I love that that Poodle Boys uh, music video or the that great Action News 8 profile of them that's at the center yeah. of the movie, but I imagine it's uh, was it a little was it a little bit difficult to uh, I don't know, really immerse yourself in this stuff, not having been at that scene, or no, were you able to find analogs today that no, made sense? Not at all. I, I took I took it with a lot of heart, and I put a lot of heart into it because I was like, I'm probably going to meet these people when this film is done, and I want to do the best job that I can. And I love rock and roll documentaries. I'm a rock and roller myself. I played in several bands, and I put as much passion into it as I could possibly do because when i was seeing the footage come in i was like all right there's something here and it looks beautiful and it looks like crap some of this vhs stuff but that's good that's the time it was filmed it's not going to be in hd or whatever uh i was always putting my heart into it i i'm pretty sure i got a little teary eye when we actually showed it i had a bunch of drinks with the people that were interviewed that was my first time meeting them it was great to see like the before and after for some of these rockers they still got their hair going and wearing their leather jackets i thought that was wonderful and that's almost a look in the future for me that's these are like people i think that i'm going to grow into one day as an as an older person and maybe like passing the torch to a younger audience jerry i'm glad that uh, eric started off by mentioning the poodle boys because of all the bands uh, discussed in this documentary, they were maybe the ones closest to reaching some kind of national acclaim or national uh, standing. And well, at least again, this is my understanding. I'm very curious to hear if um, if you feel otherwise. But take me into some of uh, these bands because it's not. This isn't just a focus on you know the, the replacements focused approach of Gordon Rashad. This is we have the Poodle Boys, but I wrote down you know just a cross section of names we have. Baby Strange, Bleach Black, Cheetah Chrome, De Willows, Dead City, Disturbance, The Dummies, and that's just, you know, through the letter D. There are a lot of bands referenced in this movie, and I think that's kind of the point of it as well. You're documenting a scene, not a particular band's impact on it, but the great diversity um, of people and of styles of music that were a part of this. So when you think about the music documented in this movie, first of all, who are, who are the bands that come to mind, and, and what was it that drew you to them? Well, Ron's place set the stage, so to speak, for this whole amazingly eclectic and very, very creative group of musicians. 
you could go to Ron's place and play anything you wanted, any kind of style, and it'd be accepted. People would give you an ear, and you had a stage. So you'd have someone like the Fuhrers play, and then the next night, you might see the Saucers, two very different kind of bands, both brilliant in their own way. Um, one of my favorites, The Disturbance, these people had no music out. I mean, there was no vinyl records out. I went to see them so many times, and their music was so good. I knew all their songs without there being any record to, to reference. I knew them all. I knew them all by heart. That's how good they were. The songs were that good, and the band was that good. And so you would you learn them. You you came to know them through their shows. That was your yes. exposure to them. Yes. Um, one of the uh, you know a a book that this movie immediately made me think of is one called Our Band Could Be Your Life by Michael Azarad, which uh, documents a kind of par- a parallel story at a similar time about this post punk kind of movement, uh, hardcore and indie and. Uh, the emergence of these bands like um, uh, Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth and everything kind of in between the talking heads and Nirvana was how he describes it. And he describes a whole kind of underground musical kind of cultural landscape uh, that existed in cities all across America in the 1980s. And the music was always at the center of it, but as important to the music were these independent record labels that pushed, like SST, that kind of pushed these labels out to record stores that people flocked to, and then zines that they read. I wonder if, you know, this this movie, I want, I'm going to circle back to the music, but I want to ask you first, as someone who participated in this, who went to the shows, who listened to it, um, this movie is primarily about the venues and the music, but did New Haven also have those other outlets, if not an independent record label, then the music stores where people would go and listen and chat about music, the zines that would turn them on to stuff they hadn't heard of? Well, um, Minneapolis, Minnesota had Twin Tone Records. Athens, Georgia, I don't know if there was any central label outside of, um, oh golly, I'm blocking out. There was a label that Pylon came out on. I just don't recall what it was. Uh, DB Records. And we didn't have that New Haven outside of, outside of Gustav Records that was Craig Bell's label. There wasn't one central label, but bands would put stuff out um, on their own. There wasn't an awful lot of it. Uh, the band I was in, International Q, released their own record. They had a single and they had a mini album hmm. that they put out by their own. And people would pick them up. They'd be, they'd be in Rhymes. They'd be in Cutler's. So Rhymes was another Rhymes record Records, store? Rhymes Records, pardon me. Cutler's Records. Best and- Tunes Records. Capital and, Records. And where, where, where were these all throughout downtown New Haven? Yes, they were. I'd go down Saturday, walk between each three of them, uh, and spend my, my lunch money. Um, one of the things that I, I so love about you know thinking about the venues and watching this movie is that these venues, these bars that were often operated by kind of old, crusty men who saw an opportunity to make some money by opening up to punks, uh, is that these were venues where people from all around New Haven, young people who really did not feel like they fit in in the 1980s, <laughs> did not feel like they fit in in suburban Connecticut, had a place for, you know, to be themselves, to be weird, to get up on stage and do outlandish things. Uh, once you kind of begin to describe the larger kind of cultural environment of it, like with record stores, and um, did you feel like, did you encounter people you saw at shows only at shows? Or did you see them all around New Haven uh, at this time? We'd bump into each other at record stores, um, but it was basically like the grotto was the meeting place. Who was playing there? We'd be there. And uh, there was this network of fanzines, as you mentioned, that I was hooked into. I had my own fanzine for a while that was called Overview Magazine, the principle of which was do one interview on one band and have a discography. Uh, the first one I did was U2. I did Psychedelic Furs. I did The Flesh Tones. All these bands would come to Toast Place, and I'd say, hey, here's my magazine. And we'd do it. 
Is there an archive of this anywhere? At your house, in your basement? Uh, I've got it, yeah. <laughs> that is great. I would love to check that. I mean, that's... Yeah, I'll show that to you sometime. Kind yeah. of what I hope to establish is something like this, you know, bringing people in New Haven who do interesting things around movies and get their voices on, you know, on the radio so that people who were not around in the 1980s, right, who didn't go to the grotto like myself, um, can think about how important a role it played in the musical life of the city at that time. Uh, tell me, so we've spoken about a few bands. Tell me about uh, just a, a few more that are featured in this movie. Uh, we've mentioned the Poodle Boys, the Führers, Disturbance. Um, are there any others that, that really jump out to you as kind of emblematic of this scene? Yes. I, I would say from the era about 1979 to 1983, everyone thought the Poodle Boys were going to make it. They seemed to have the best shot. But for me, after that era, like 1983, when Miracle Legion started, they were it. For me, I thought, if anyone's going to break out of this town, become a national act, it's going to be Miracle Legion. They had the songs. They had the look. They had imagination. Mark Mulcahy knew a lot of people. They went out on national tours. They were just looking like the front runners. Their music was wonderful. They put out an EP at first. It did very well in the backyard. Played on college radio around town and probably nationally. But they did very, very well. Everyone thought they were going to break. And uh, Eric will tell you that we did make a film about Miracle Legion and Mark Mulcahy's music. Right, Eric? We did. That was basically our sequel to uh, It Happened But Nobody Noticed. But uh, that's, it's funny because you know, it's called It Happened But Nobody Noticed. Well, the Mark Mulcahy <laughs> uh, documentary happened, but nobody noticed it as well. <laughs> but did you, uh, so, did yeah, you finish that movie? Is it oh, out yes. there? Yeah, be- yes, yes. That's just... Um, not out it's not going to be out so but we did another two and a half years on that one but you can't see it it's not not available That's maybe someday <laughs> maybe someday but yeah we we spent two and a half years and miracle legion i mean if i mean jerry's gonna say any other band besides poodle boys i i feel the same way and not knowing the scene just from the songs and the live performances i think miracle legion was great and i mean it's mark's voice and and ray neal's guitar playing and you know mark went off to do the Adventures of Pete and Pete, writing all those songs for Nickelodeon show, and they're all great pop songs. I mean, they still hold, hold up today for like indie rock songs. And then they just play College Music Hall. Then they just play. Over they there? they opened College they're, Music Hall, right? right? I think they were the first show. And they're presently they're the a band. Show. They're on tour. I don't know if right now, yeah. but they just toured Europe. Well, if they ever, oh yeah, if they ever come out this way, I'll definitely check them out in Los Angeles. But I don't know if they're going to do that. But yeah. I, I feel like that's the band. That was the biggest band. I, I, from my, that that period, that band, from my period, it was like The Pissed and Spring Hill Jack. And I don't know who's doing what over Grover there. Dill. Maybe it was Grover Dill. Oh, oh wait, I can't say that. I was a member. <laughs> uh, who? I mean, who's who's up there nowadays? I, I mean, is it is it because there's too many genres that people aren't supporting enough? Is, it, is, is there a band? Is there a place? I mean... I love that the stuff that like the space and the outer space and all that's doing. And yeah, is the, there a band back east right now that's really hot? I, I would like to know. Yeah, the the space and the outer space are are definitely the kind of go to venues for this type. And Cafe Nine. I mean, those are the yeah, of kind of two I institutions uh, in downtown and nearby that host them. But also, uh, there have been. Um, you know, a lot of kind of sprouting up of uh, house venues, you know, people who host concerts at their homes uh, very informally and they'll have like 30 friends over. But that is where, you know, in Edgewood, uh, in, along Whaley, uh, closer to Westville, um, right. Daggett Street, which was an arts complex in the Hill for yep. a long time, 
uh, closed last year was uh, kind of shut down by uh, the city because of various violations of fire codes. And also, you know, that that will eventually become uh, kind of, I'm sure, a luxury apartment complex. But um, <laughs> but that that used to be a, a spot for a lot of shows. But yeah, I mean, there are plenty there are plenty of bands still around today that are trying to kind of maintain that legacy. Ten Thousand Blades was a favorite of mine. Ellison Jackson, Jose Ola and the Astronauts. Um, but without it's difficult without the venue like without the venues documented in this movie. I mean, we have yeah. the space, we have Cafe Nine. Now we have the College Street Music Hall, but that's three. Um, and it's always a challenge for them to to stay alive, to stay around. And I wonder if, I mean, as you reflect on the kind of legacy of this scene, you know, go to Jerry first, as you think about the legacy of this this time in New Haven musical history and the venues that were there, is that one of the key kind of takeaways that there was some kind of physical, like, infrastructure for these people to play music at? Is that uh, something you don't, I don't know, really see around anymore or... I, I think that part of what's lost is the art of songwriting. And I do keep an ear to current music. And once in a while, I get a band that has a strong songwriting, but they just don't seem to be able to be consistent with their songwriting. But the bands back that populated that era, I'd say from 1979 to 1989, around that time, the local bands were great songwriters. You go see them and say, you know, they belong on Toad's Play stage. They can open up for any band that comes over from England or what have you and play up to their standard. Their songwriting was that good. Yeah, and that and that is definitely what keeps the you know, the best local bands around today. It's all it's it's the energy, it's the musicianship, but it's always the songwriting at the top. I and mean, that's what keeps me coming back. Eric, I wonder as you know, you're across the country in California, but as you you know, think about uh, this movie again for today's interview. Uh, I wonder what comes to mind when you think of the legacy of this scene, of the kind of subjects that you help document in this movie. Uh, wh- what are your, I don't know, like key takeaways for listeners of this show, for people who watch the movie? Um, what do you get out of thinking about this scene again? I mean, it's uh, well, it's 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 a time capsule, right? I mean, it lives and uh, it's on the internet for everyone to watch on YouTube. It will never be sold in stores. It's total DIY film, and I think that Jerry and I, for for the financing we had, which was none, and Jerry just bought train tickets to where he had to go and shoot. I think it's a huge accomplishment. Um, I'm proud to be home from New Haven. I mean, I I learned all the do-it-yourself techniques from Connecticut punk rock and, and being back there. And I bought that with me to Los Angeles. Um, I'm proud to come home and I make the rounds to bar cafe nine Rudy's Rudy's. <laughs> what's the other one? Rudy's two, uh, three sheets. Oh, three sheets is uh, one that I should mention is another yes, popular spot. Space. Yeah. When I come home, I am so excited to come home and hit up. All, those, those are the only places I go when I come back. I'm at all those places. I'm just really happy. I mean, I, I hope that someone, that's an inspiring filmmaker does that for our scene. Uh, and I'm talking about the nineties and early two thousands, but I don't know if anyone's going to do that. So I, I'm just, ho- I hope that like all the people that were a part of it happened feel, um, well, they thanked us when we showed it, they thanked us. They were like, and some of them were in tears crying. Like, thank you for capturing and putting this together of my youth. And I thought that was the most important. I walked away from that film, having much older friends, the people I could call my friends, uh, people to look up to. 
well, it happened, but nobody noticed is available on YouTube. And we'll make sure to include a link on the, uh, this episode's page on the deepfocusradio.com website. Um, and as we wind down, uh, with, you know, the amount of time we have for this interview, I want to make sure to, first of all, Jerry, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure You're to welcome. have you here and talking about this movie, Great but, to be here. but also first, I'm going to ask two quick questions of both of you. Yeah. One is what are you working on now? And also where can people find out more about what you do, uh, or anything else that you want to plug? So Eric, I'm going to go to you and then Jerry will round off with you. So Eric, what are you working on now? And, and what do you want to plug at the end of this interview? Uh, currently, I work for the BBC. Uh, I have, I'm an editor living in Los Angeles. I have a television program that's on National Geographic called Life Below Zero, and that's the show I cut. That's my 9 to 5. I love it, though. I'm happy. Uh, but I'm working on another documentary about an Internet YouTuber that's been doing YouTube since 1984, uh, before there was YouTube. So it's pretty much like it happened where I have all this archival fi- footage to go through. But it's this up-and-coming YouTube person who's been vlogging before there was an audience to vlog to. And uh, his name is Weird Paul Petrowski. Um, Look him up. Don't look me up. Look up Weird Paul on Facebook. He's hilarious. And uh, that's the next documentary that I'm uh, working on and coming out with. We'll keep our eyes out for Weird Paul. And Jerry, what, what's on the horizons for you? Are you working on any movies, any photography right now? And, and where can people find out more about what you do? I'm not working on anything presently, but Eric told me that you don't choose a project it chooses you and i thought i had a subject in mind for another rock documentary but i'm not giving up on it and i don't care to disclose it so no one will scoop me but uh eric you're in the loop on this all right all right we'll have to talk about it okay do i have to do i have to edit it not yet (laughs) (laughs) but but when we when when i show you this idea i think you'll be excited about it all right. Of course. We'll, we'll have drinks as soon as I get back. PBR. <laughs> well, PBR. As... No, I, I've graduated Jack and Cokes. The, okay. The All right. I'll be the ready. Lemmy. <laughs> well, as the movie, as they, as they move from idea to actual movie, I hope you come back and chat about it because it'd be, it'd be great to have you back on the show to Absolutely. talk about it. So Jerry Lombardo and Eric Michael Schrader, are the directors of the 2009 documentary, It Happened But Nobody Noticed. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us. Coming up next, a review of the new movie, Denial. But first, let's hear a little bit of music. Hello, Deep Focus listeners. This is Tom Breed. I know I just promised some music, but instead I'm going to jump in in between segments and talk about our end-of-year show. Uh, It's coming up. We are going to be talking about our favorite movies of 2016, uh, and that is going to be the first Thursday of January. I'll be joined by Arnold Gorlick and Dan Heaton again, but I would love it if you all could participate. So if you're interested in calling in and sharing your favorite movie of the year, please call 203-479-0376. That's 203-479-0376 and leave a short message about your favorite movie of the year and we will try to play it on air. You can also go to deepfocusradio.com and leave us a message that way. So yeah, just wanted to plug that end of year episode. And now let's get back to our show with a review of Denial. Welcome back to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Denial, a new movie from director Mick Jackson, tells the story of a defamation lawsuit from the late 90s and early 2000s brought by British World War II historian and virulent Holocaust denier David Irving against American professor and Holocaust studies scholar Deborah Lipstadt. Irving, played by Timothy Spall, accuses Lipstadt, played by Rachel Weitz, of destroying his professional reputation by affixing him with the libelous, unforgivable, socially untenable title of denier. 
He's not a falsifier of history, he claims, but someone interested in casting doubt on conventional wisdom. In the British court system, where the burden of proof in a defamation lawsuit falls on the defendant, Lipstadt and her team of lawyers set out to prove that Irving is not an alternative historian, but a liar. Not an eccentric, if controversial, personality, but an anti-Semite and a racist. The lawsuit, the legal team assures Lipstadt, is not about the veracity of the Holocaust. Rather, it is about a deliberate, hate-inspired spreading of misinformation by David Irving himself. So, Alan, the parallels between David Irving and Donald Trump are quite evident, and the movie, I think, is well aware of that comparison. Two men who claim to be political and professional outsiders looking to take down an insider class they resent, but also want to be a part of. Two men with no compunction about lying and are well aware of the direction that those lies point towards inciting racial resentment, towards inciting fear and panic. And maybe most importantly, two men capable of using the media to legitimize themselves through spectacle and self-righteous claims against conspiracies of power. So I wonder, as you watch Denial, did you find this movie to be a compelling commentary in any way on the current presidential race? Maybe a wish fulfillment of you know, thoroughly debunking someone who just doesn't go away? Or did this movie lack the necessary verve and historical authority to uh, truly trump a Trump or a David Irving, for that matter? Can I take the fifth on that? I mean, it actually never even occurred to me to compare David Irving with Donald Trump, except that the first letter of both their first names is D. It never even occurred to me. Um, and I don't know, maybe one of the reasons why is I, 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 I find uh, I found Tim, Timothy Spall, Spalling? Spall. Spall. Fabulous as um, as the uh, uh, the David Irving character, and I was really I was really intrigued by him, um, because there are um, now that I think about your comparison, I, I think there there is interest and there is depth there, um, and the character he's such a wonderful actor, uh, Spall, um, and I, I guess I was thinking of um, Mr. Turner. And all these wonderful roles he plays. He's so much more interesting than Donald Trump that um, just the experience of them um, um, ma- made me not uh, kind of connect with the the issue comparison that you raised. Although I grant you that it's there, but there, there's something small about the whole film. It should be larger. You know, and I think that's what, one of the issues. You know, mm. I think that the... The issue comparison is one thing, but also it, it was really the personality comparison that drew me in, regardless of what it is they were talking about or even what was inspiring them to act in the way that they were. This is a man who um, manipulates the media to create this aura of outsiderdom, and he creates this kind of outsized personality because of that way that he can... Now, he doesn't... David Irving maybe doesn't have the same uh, type of, you know... 10,000 person rally that we so think of when we think of Trump. I mean, there aren't hordes of people flocking to him as a potential savior for a, an issue, a, an economy that affects everyone in a country. This is a pretty niche market of, of Holocaust denial. I mean, you have your skinheads and you have your skinheads, and those are the people going out to support him. But I think that the way that this movie positions the rest of the world's response to someone who is so loud and so out there and so persistent is similar to how I see the Democratic Party and the media, the mainstream media, really struggling to deal with Trump. If you remember, and I apologize for giving a spoiler of sorts, but one, it winds up that the Holocaust did in fact exist, and this movie, you know, and the court trial uh, falls squarely on that side. But also the end of the movie is not necessarily with the verdict, but rather with someone turning off the TV 
right? How do you get rid of a guy who, even after he loses the court case, saying that you know he he has been somehow vindicated in his skepticism of mainstream media? The only way to get rid of him, this movie posits, is to turn off the TV, and that is one thing that no one in this country, media especially, have been able to do with Donald Trump. So, Lucy, I wonder, as was that parallel in mind as you watched this movie, and did you find it an, I don't know, an effective set of guidelines for how to deal with such a crazed rabble-rouser? You know, it it wasn't until immediately after the movie, and then suddenly it was, if that makes sense. But um, I I think the comparison of Timothy Spall as David Irving to Donald Trump himself is maybe a little off the mark. I would say it falls much closer to uh, not one Trump supporter, but sort of this uh, amalgam or amalgamation of several Trump supporters. And And what I mean by that is... Irving is a really interesting character, and I think Spall steps into it. I mean, if if we're talking about the best performance in this movie, hands down, it comes from Timothy Spall. I'm I'm really comfortable saying that. Um, but if we're thinking of Irving as a character, he's so interesting in that he has this outsider status, and he's very proud of it. But he also wants to be part of the academic club, right? The club of historians some of whom are trying so hard to discredit him and basically prove that his whole, what he thinks of as his body of scholarship is bunk. At the same time, we know that historically, this is a person who perfected his German by doing what? Working in a factory with, uh, with people who we might think of kind of as having a working class mentality that, yes, maybe fall would fall into the Trump camp, you know, if translated to the U.S. So, so that's one thing. I Yeah, I, I mean, I think I thought about it. Um, this is not a film that operates in nuance. And so I think that anything that we got on Irving that was nuanced really was to Spall's credit. Alan, one of my favorite tweets that I saw after the screening of this movie at Toronto was a, a film critic whose name I'm blanking on, but he said that Denial is an incredibly satisfying movie, but to be honest, it feels like it was directed by bricklayers. And... I think that there's something true to that. And I wonder if when you say that this feels like a kind of slight movie, um, I wonder if that direction, the very straightforward kind of utilitarian nature of the movie where every single scene serves a relatively shallow purpose of um, I everything is kind of building up towards the courtroom drama, but then we don't get much of a conflict in the courtroom drama. Every, we have to rely, our engagement with the movie is really completely contingent upon how we feel, how repulsed we are by Timothy Spall's character. And I don't mean repulsed in a bad way. I mean, that is a, an emotional response that, you know, he his performance is able to elicit from the audience. But for the most part, I feel like the audience is kind of told the same thing as Deborah Lipstadt's character, which is to sit down button your lip, shut up, and, and watch this, which is good for you. Uh, be, be quiet and win. Yeah. I mean, one of the ironies of the movie is that, uh, you know, one, one thinks it's going to be about Holocaust denial, but what the film turns out to be about is uh, denying the Rachel White's character, Deborah Lipset, from opening her mouth and, and you know, and saying all the, 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 the pent-up um, tirade that she has against people like Self-denial is how it's Self denial, yeah. And for some reason, I've been going around this whole week since I saw the movie thinking that the name of the movie is Denali, (laughs) not Denial. Maybe because here in New Haven we have this store on Broadway. Or you felt like you were climbing a mountain by the end of it. Or I felt I was in Alaska somewhere. (laughs) But you're right. The movie is ham-handed. 
uh, it, the way it's directed. It feels it feels um, um, bricklayer brick is a is a very nice term. <laughs> um, and and um, I, I think it, whatever talent the the director has, the the, the person's also hampered by, um, except for the Timothy Spall character, a, a really uh, close to a cliched. Um, a portrait of uh, the Deborah Lipstadt character. I don't know how close it. It says based on a based on a true story. I don't know what liberties were taken, but more should have been taken uh, because she's just such a cliche. That's a that's also a serious problem. And 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 you're right. There a, a, a law court and a um um a back and forth between lawyers is inherently a dramatic situation. You got to be really kind of a tone deaf. Um, not to have that be dramatic, and there are there there is one moment three quarters of the way through the film when when Irving uh, makes his point and you know, the heart beats a little little fast, um, and 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 there's also another moment when the judge asks a question to um, uh, I guess there is it Richard Rampton, which is quite powerful, and he he, he turns to you know uh, the Lipstadt's attorney, the Tom Wilkinson character, and says. Is it possible uh, to be honestly anti-Semitic? And it makes you think that the the judge is actually um, considering the, uh, a verdict on the side of David Irving. So and there, I feel like that's communicated the, throughout the trial as well. The judge is always moments. kind of looking semi-sympathetically yeah. or inquisitively well, you, towards Irving. I mean, and, look, but when you, know, you go to see, you know, uh, Billy Bob Thornton in uh, The Alamo, you, I mean, know how The Alamo came out, you know how this came out, but it's still... You know, it, it could be a good movie or it could not be a good movie, and um, it, I, I they're, they're just. Uh, I, I think the real death to this movie isn't so much the ham-handed directing, but it's that is is that the the Deborah Lipstadt character is not even credible. It's not credible that she doesn't. She, how could she not know a person of her education? The you know what a barrister's role is and what the solicitor is. She doesn't know that, and um, you know. She's a, she's like a kind of a, a, t- a stereotypical American, and we're not with her. She's reduced to the role of audience surrogate, right? We're we not are with her at we all. are witnessing this trial unfold right. Right. Uh, through her eyes, and we, you know, it, inevitably we're in a passive position because we're in our seats in the movie theater, and so I feel like she is kind of neutered in the way that she can but affect. That's, but that's lethal to a story. movie when mm-hmm. when when her antagonist is is uh, Timothy Spall playing this character it's a little bit like the the problem that you have with paradise lost where god is boring and lucifer is fascinating so lucy one thing that i appreciated about this movie and it kind of gets back to our conversation way earlier in the year about son of saul which Mm -hmm. is another movie about the holocaust a very different type of movie talking about point of view i mean we are stuck kind of in the in the head of a Sonderkommando at Auschwitz, and we see the horrors of the Holocaust kind of unfold over the course of the day. And much more affecting and effective, I should say. But one thing, one parallel, if there is any, between these two movies, not just that they're about the Holocaust, but two, that they take a very specific approach to understanding a much larger and, you know, troubling phenomenon. They're... I think their thesis is that in order to understand something so grand, so multifaceted, and so awful, it really helps to focus. And I found that in if there was any drama in the courtroom for me and anything novel about it, it was the way that Timothy Spall's character's argument and then Tom Wilkinson's argument against him all focused on 
a very specific part of the Auschwitz gas chambers and whether there were kind of holes in the roof that would indicate that cyanide was indeed dropped into these gas chambers to um, to kill the people inside. And Spall argues that they were it was in fact a room to fumigate corpses and then they unpack that argument. But I, I don't, you know, I think that the way that it actually plays out, you know, could have been done more dramatically, but I really appreciate that focus on a very specific kind of seemingly inconsequential, you know, h- how do you identify the important details in something that is involving the, you know, the murder of six million people? Where do you even start? And I appreciate that this movie finds a place to start. It finds a particular thing to pivot around because one of the troubles with someone like Donald Trump, where the lies are big and they come often, is that it's it's difficult to counter uh, with kind of big truths if it's just, you know, it becomes a matter in the public media discourse that, okay, these are two alternative readings of immigration in this country. They're two big alternative readings of one, we either have an immigration crisis or we don't, or you know, and these are like two legitimate ways to think about it. Um, this movie does not take a big um, counter to Holocaust denial. It says, here are the specific facts that counter your reading that's kind of building up to your argument. Did that do anything for you, That the details of that argument? I think only in that... Um, uh- you know, you're you're saying it's it's fine detail, and it is. But the other thing is, this movie, and indeed some some of the ongoing Holocaust denial. You know, I like I'm from a state where we still have a very active chapter of skinheads in the KKK, and they still protest in Michigan. And so, this is something that is not far from our history. You know, whether we're using it with a capital H or a, a lowercase H, but um, but. The use of Auschwitz in this movie is also because Auschwitz was historically a labor camp and it was not, or or the argument in this movie was not intended to be an extermination camp. And that is what uh, Spall's character, Irving, tries to concentrate on. And then, you know, his, his whole argument, if you can't prove the holes, you can't prove the Holocaust, is attempting to not only debunk Auschwitz and deny Auschwitz, but then deny the entire Holocaust from that point. So I think you're working on, you know, kind of micro to move out. Um, I mean, that said, it's it's just, again, I don't think this is something that uh, this movie is something that operates very well with subtleties. And I, I didn't think this was any exception. I also think the difference now is, of course, technology has changed and media has changed in ways that you can't always expect. And so I don't know if it's a perfect analog to say that immigration, you know, the lies of, around immigration are um, are kind of pointing back to something similar because there are clips. I mean, there are audio clips now that the media is using and that the Clinton campaign is using where, you know, Donald Trump says in, in one clip, I never said that. And then the next clip is him saying that. And somehow... There are people, and and this is what ties it to, I think, Holocaust denial. Somehow there are people who still say, oh, he never said that. Um, You know, most recently we've had the Trump uh, lie that Clinton started the birther controversy. And there are suddenly tens of thousands of people in the United States who believe that Clinton started the birther controversy. Um, Yeah. Well, I I just would disagree with, with, uh, I I think... What you say is it, it is it is an interesting way to go about dealing with a huge kind of a hard hard for the brain to grasp idea of the Holocaust by focusing on um, the the windows uh, and 
but I think that gets lost a lot in in what turns out to be the, the kind of legal version of a police procedural. Mm. It's all about how you win a case of libel. Uh, it's very technical. Uh, it's about forensics. It's you know measuring distances and so on and so forth, and that's very interesting. But uh, it, it's uh, and and it's about uh, comparing one uh, you know one one remark uh, uh, that he makes in one edition of his book and another edition of the book. Uh, I, I, the The Holocaust, it seems to me, gets lost in the in the in in the in the minutiae of of the legal wrangling, and he sort of don't know what to be looking at in this movie. It, it can't quite make up his mind. And as far as Trump and and Irving go, um, the thing, what makes what makes kind of the comparison of the two a little shaky in my mind is 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 um, you know, this this David Irving character. He really believes he's really an anti semite. He and he, you know he and uh, the Holocaust denial, as the as the Rachel White's character says, opens a portal to a whole other agenda. Thing about Donald Trump is we all feel as much damage as he's causing. He really doesn't have any agenda except uh, the desire for endless adulation. He's he's uh, you know on some level he's uh, he's he you know the skinheads that flock to him are the are, those are the people that are um, dangerous, not not Trump. And I think and I, and I think the Timothy Spall character is. Um, you know, one, the, the absolutely great movie is when he wants to shake the hand of Richard Rampton, uh, when when the defense has won the case, and he he, he won't deign to even look at. And him. the way that that almost elicits a bit done. of sympathy from the audience, right? It's because this is a, ca- a character who comes off as somehow being bullied, and that is exactly what what Spall wants to communicate about Irving, right? He wants to project that he is the underdog. He of is course. the one battling against the censorship of, you know, mainstream thought, when in fact, you know, ultimately, Rachel Weiss's comment about how some things happen in the and, Holocaust but, is one of the things and that And in happened. that scene, before he extends his hand to, 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 to have the gentleman or the club acknowledge that he's alive, he folds up his coat so neatly. He folds it inside out, and you can see it's red on the inside. I mean, all these little details make him fascinating, whereas all we get from Rachel Weiss uh, is she orders bagels because she's from Queens <laughs> and she she's, jogs. She's right? not from yeah. Brooklyn and she jogs and it's every cliche in the book. And, um, um, but, but anyway, it, it's, um, it's, it's disappointing that, that, that it turned out the way it did. Well, the, the movie is denial. I think that we can recommend at least Timothy Spall's performance, if not the entire thing, but Alan, Lucy, as always, thanks so much for Thank coming you. on Thank the you show. Tom. And you can find a complete archive of deep focus episodes at deepfocusradio.com.